Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In the spring of 1918, a young Scottish diplomat began to put together a plot that was intended to change the entire direction of the Great War and save the Allies from defeat. As Robert Hamilton Bruce Lockhart began making his plans, Germany's Operation Michael was threatening to break the Western Front open before American troops arrived in full strength. Lockhart thought he could bring Russia back into the war that it had abandoned the year before. He would do this by killing Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky, overthrowing the Bolshevik government, and installing a new regime that would attack Germany and reestablish an Eastern Front. This plot, and the extraordinary personalities and stakes involved in it, are recounted in Jonathan Schneer's new book, The Lockhart Plot, Love, Betrayal, Assassination, and Counter-Revolution in Lenin's Russia, which, among other things, demonstrates the truth of the moldy old cliché, fact really is stranger than fiction. Jonathan Schneer is Professor of Emeritus of History at Georgia Tech, the School of History and Sociology, a specialist in the history of modern Britain. His books include London 1900, The Imperial Metropolis, The Thames, England's River, Ministers at War, Winston Churchill and His War Cabinet, 1940-1945, and The Balfour Declaration, The Origins of Arab-Israeli Conflict, which won a 2010 National Jewish Book Award. He is currently working on a book about the British general strike of 1926. Professor Schneer, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. So let's, uh, this is a complex plot. <clears throat> Fascinating personalities. So let's get some names. Let's do a little dramatis personae. Um, I'll uh, read off a couple of names uh, uh, from uh, protagonist, antagonist, uh, depending on p your point of view. Um, and you'll uh, tell us who they are, okay? Sure. We'll begin with the, uh, the, 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 the protagonist himself, Robert Hamilton Bruce Lockhart. Yes, Robert Hamilton Bruce Lockhart. And by the way, his last name, it took me a long time to figure this out, but his last name is Bruce Lockhart. Bruce hyphen so, Lockhart? Hmm. Well, there's no hyphen, but he's a Bruce <laughs> Lockhart. And all okay. his, I have met his, some of his descendants and, and they are all Bruce Lockharts. Um, so, okay. Um, so he was in 1918, 31 years old. He was Scottish. He had been in the British consular service in Russia. He was a high flyer. When he took the consular service exam in 1912, he scored first in every single category. And as a result, he got a plum job, which was to be the vice consul in Moscow. He wasn't sent off somewhere far, uh, you know, uh, somewhere more primitive, shall we say. Um, so he then um, did a very fine job as vice consul, so fine that when the senior man, the consul general, uh, became sick, Bruce Lockhart replaced him. And he was still in his 20s, and yet he was reporting back to Great Britain as World War I began. And his reports were read with increasing interest in the Foreign Office and eventually even by Balfour, the Foreign Secretary, and David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister. 
However, he became involved in an extramarital affair, not his first, but one that was too visible. And he was sent home with his wife, I should say, from Russia. That was in 1917. He then uh, began predicting that there would be a second revolution after Kerensky's revolution. Events bore him out. And the government decided to send him back to Russia at the very end of 1917, beginning of 1918. His mission was to make contact with the new Bolshevik regime, which, of course, the British detested since it was a communist regime, but somehow to persuade it to stay in the war against Germany or failing that at least to make a peace with Germany that did not hurt British interests. So Lockhart arrived in Petrograd this time, not Moscow, um, met with Trotsky and very soon realized that the Bolsheviks did not distinguish between British and French and German imperialists. They were all each as bad as the other. They were going to get out of the war no matter what, and they didn't care what uh, British interests they hurt uh, in the process, at which point young Bruce Lockhart began to concoct the plot that bears his name. And what uh, what month and year is this? He returned. He, to... he returned to Russia at the end of January 1918. He doesn't begin. It, it takes some months before he realizes that his mission is impossible and that he should do something else. And what he decides to do, of course, is overthrow the Bolsheviks. So you have uh, described him as a rogue often. Um, and I have to say that I fell at home with him because my interests are the late 17th and 18th century. He would fit right in as a governor of a, of a Caribbean island in the 18th century or of an American colony in North America <laughs> or as some other functionary of the, of the small uh, foreign office uh, of the 18th century. He's much not, he seems a little bit out of his time in his sort of casual attitude, just about everything and sort of his sort of, of his, um, Oh, his sprezzatura, uh, his uh, casual brilliance. Um, you know, here's a guy who writes beautiful reports. You've read a lot of foreign office reports in your scholarship, and you think his are great. Um, so, and you, so you're, you're a judge, and yet at the same time, um, he's as busy as a tomcat uh, when everyone's in heat. I, I lost some of what you said. The connection is not that good. Okay, he writes he's, beautiful reports, and then what yes. did you say? And, but at the same time, I mean, he combines all that with a sort of um, a casual air towards um, other uh, uh, the wives of others. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not sure that he was extraordinary in that regard. One of the things no. I discovered was that almost all the British uh, characters in uh, my book were doing exactly the same thing he was. Cromie had a had uh, a, a lover and uh, Ransom, uh, the journalist, fell in love with the, the one of the secretaries of Leon Trotsky. Um, there must have been yeah. something in the water. I'm not sure what it was. but uh, It's a revo revolution. Everything gets a little crazy, I think. Yes. That's actually probably true. But, but um, uh, let me just say one thing, which is that when, when Lockhart engages in his next extramarital affair, which is the one with Moura von Benkendorf, the one that I write about at length, that's a very serious business. That's a, that was a genuine, mad, passionate affair of the heart. 
I want to leave her aside for the moment, um, but we're going to spend some time uh, talking about her, of course. But let's go to the other, some other of the British characters you've mentioned, uh, two of them. Um, Captain Francis Allen Newton Cromie. Yes. So he had been a submarine commander (laughs) and he got a submarine into the Baltic Sea, which was in itself a dangerous business. The Germans, of course, Uh, controlled access to it by and large, but he snuck through. Um, I believe in one week he sank five German freighters. Um, He became the um, commander of the entire submarine fleet that the British had in the Baltic. But uh, then when the, the revolution took place, His talents were significant enough that the British decided to appoint him to be their naval attache in Petrograd. And so he then, he was worried that the Germans, who had had defeated the Russians, uh, would uh, destroy his submarine fleet or capture it. And so he oversaw the scuttling of the five submarines that he had brought in, that that were now in the Baltic Sea, and he devoted himself, although he did not enjoy it, to diplomatic work um, on behalf of the British as a naval attaché. But I should point out that along with Lockhart, he became deeply involved in the plot to overthrow the Bolsheviks, and his main job was to figure out how to scuttle the entire Russian uh, fleet in the Baltic Sea. With the with their fear that the Germans might somehow gain control of it, precisely. Yes, it was to keep it from the hands of the Germans. Um, Sidney Riley. Sidney Riley also becomes involved in the plot. He uh, there is a biography of him called Ace of Spies. Sidney Riley, Ace of Spies. Um, Sidney Riley was probably the model for Ian Fleming when he designed the character James Bond. Uh, He was mad, bad, and dangerous to know, you might say. And um, Riley's real name almost certainly was Slomo Ben Hirsch Rosenblum. He was (laughs) Russian. He wasn't British. He uh, escaped from Tsarist Russia, probably having engaged in some kind of anti-Tsarist agitation. But he was no real revolutionary. And when he got to Great Britain, um, he managed to marry uh, an heiress, the wife of a very wealthy doctor, whose death um, he may have had some part in. And Riley wound up marrying bigamously four times. I do not believe he divorced ever. Hmm. Um, He made a fortune first by marrying, but then he became an arms dealer and he was a very, very successful arms dealer. Um, He also somehow got involved in um, espionage, never because he had principles, but always because one government or another was willing to pay him a lot of money to ferret out information for it. And so he probably worked at one time or another for the Russians and for the British and maybe for other countries. Um, 
And he did have one genuine principle in his life. He was probably a sociopath. That's what people said about him. But he had one true belief, which was anti-Bolshevism. And so when he volunteered to go back to Russia, where he had been in the past, on behalf of the British Secret Service, uh, the British Secret Service took him up on it and sent him back. And he was soon involved with Captain Cromie and with Robert Hamilton, Bruce Lockhart, in the plot to overthrow the Bolsheviks. Arthur Ransom. Arthur Ransom was a journalist, a genuine British liberal, a very, uh, what would the word be? He's, a, um, he's an attractive character. He had a, a um, at one point, he kept a pet snake in a box in, uh, in, in the bureau of his hotel room. Um, everybody liked him. He wanted to write, a, he had a very unhappy marriage back in England, and he had a daughter by that marriage, but he spent all time his time in Russia. He wanted to write a book about Russian fairy tales and folk tales. That was how he got to Russia in the first place. He became a journalist, and he managed to become, uh, 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 he developed very good relations with leading Bolsheviks. They trusted him, and he trusted and liked them. He saw them as idealistic young men and women who were determined to transform their country. He was quite sympathetic to them. He was never a communist or a Bolshevik. He was a genuine British liberal, but as a British liberal, he thought that the Russians should be allowed to work out their destiny in their own way. And he had unrivaled access to people like Lenin. And by the way, he was having an affair uh, as, as well as Lockhart, and by the way, as well as Cromie. His was with Leon Trotsky's um, secretary, and who was called the big girl because she was six foot one. Um, so Ransom had all these connections with the top echelons of the Bolshevik party, and that would come in handy for uh, Bruce Lockhart when he arrived in Russia and needed to meet with people and talk to people. And he became very friendly with Ransom, a friendship that lasted all their lives. And Ransom went on, I should say, and to become a, a, a very prominent children's author, not so very well known in the United States, but uh, um, a, cl a classic author in, in Britain. Yes, he wrote the series of books called Amazons and Swallows, or Swallows and Amazons is, is, mm. is correct, which yeah. uh, 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 that's a, a number of books about children having adventures in the Lake District in England. Yeah. Um, the secret world is not very bureaucratic at the time. Um, who are all these people working for? Uh, Lockhart is not working for the new, the very new uh, official Secret Service Bureau, or is it uh, whatever they're calling themselves at the time. Uh, are any of these other characters doing that? Sidney Riley was. Sidney Riley, but not yes. but not Ransom. No, not Ransom Crowley. is an independent journalist, although okay. he undoubtedly uh, reported that whenever he got back to England, they would call him in and they would debrief him. Um, what they may or may not have realized was that Probably the Bolsheviks were debriefing him too about his own country. He, he, he was a British patriot, but he was quite sympathetic to the young, idealistic men and women who were trying to recreate Russia. Well, let's move on now to um, people that sort of occupy. Well, 
one person in particular occupies a sort of ground in between the, the two camps, uh, the two opposing camps. Um, the most fascinating person in the book, Mura von Beckendorf, or Budberg, if you, if you prefer. Yes. So she was, in 1918, the wife of an aristocratic Russian of Baltic German descent named John von Benkendorf. She herself came from a very wealthy Ukrainian family. She married von Benkendorf. He was a junior diplomat sent to Berlin before the war. When the war broke out, they returned to Russia. By that time, she already had one infant son whose name was Paul. In 1915, she had a daughter whose name was Tanya. Um, and her husband became an aide-de-camp to the Tsar. But they did not get along very well. And probably it's because John von Benkendorf would have been happy running the family estate, which was called Yendel, in Estonia, and leaving politics alone, especially once the Bolsheviks took over. He, he saw no future for himself in a Bolshevik country. But Mura always wanted to be at the center of events. And so she allowed John to take their two children to Yendel in Estonia while she stayed in Moscow. And there she met at a party, Bruce Lockhart, who had just arrived on his mission from England. And they soon fell madly and passionately in love. Now, the action takes place in both Petrograd and Moscow, or Petrograd, I should, I should say, for explanatory purposes, as uh, what they had changed the name, St. Petersburg. Uh, yes, to, right. oh, St. Petersburg, Leningrad, Petrograd, all the same place. Um, so the action's taking place in both Petrograd and Moscow. Where are people located? Is Lockhart in Petrograd or in Moscow during this time? Or both? Uh, both. They, they started out in Petrograd, but as the Germans began to invade Russia, the Bolsheviks moved their uh, offices and really, therefore, the capital of Russia from Petrograd to Moscow and Lockhart accompanied them. Now, Cromy remained in Petrograd because, of course, that's, uh, that's a port, and Cromy was the naval attaché. Mura um, uh, lived in Petrograd, but she would come and often visit Lockhart in Moscow. Ransom, by the way, also moved to Moscow because obviously he was trying to cover what the Bolsheviks were doing, and they were all now in Moscow. Um, two Bolsheviks. Um, I'm assuming that listeners know who Lenin and Trotsky were, um, and Stalin, although I'm, he doesn't show up much. Um, who was Felix Zhirzhinsky? Felix Zhirzhinsky was the head of the Cheka. The Cheka was the Russian secret police, the Bolshevik secret police, founded at the end of um, yes, at the end of 1917. Felix Zerzhinsky had been active in the revolutionary movements against the Tsar. And he was, um, nobody worked harder or, or more selflessly than Felix Zerzhinsky. And nobody suffered more for it than Felix Zerzhinsky. He would be caught and he would be imprisoned and he would be tortured and then he would escape. And he escaped from Siberia many, I don't know, I 
I lost track, but I would say at least three times, maybe four times, he got out of Siberia, each time more difficult than the previous time. They did finally catch him and really, and, and put leg irons on him and kept him in prison, uh, nearly killed him. They beat him so badly, for example, that um, they, they mangled his mouth and he could never, the muscles never healed he could, properly and he could never smile. This was a man who couldn't smile. <laughs> Lenin put him in charge of the secret police, which was called the Chaka. Um, it was like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. The man who knew more about conspiracies and about um, plotting against a regime now is in charge of ferreting out people who were doing that against the Bolshevik regime, and nobody was better at it than Felix Zerzhinsky. And they called him Iron Felix Zerzhinsky because he was, it was as if he was made of iron. I seem to recall a story that he would have his um, very simple uh, clothing tailored so that uh, his wrists were visible to all his comrades, and they could see that there were scars on his wrists from where they, the uh, manacles had been kept. God, I he, I never saw that. I didn't know that. He, yeah, he was uh, he was not he was was sure to let everyone else know that he had suffered more for the cause than anyone else. Um, in however subtle a way, uh, he would he would let people know. He also drove a Rolls Royce, I believe, um, or had a, was driven around Moscow in a Rolls Royce. That's part of part it, of the, well, it could be, but he um, the Dzerzhinsky the Dzerzhinsky, um, myth, you know, the the myth from everything I read. Um, you know, he slept on an iron cot in the in his office. He yeah. uh, he insisted on eating what the uh, rank and file members of the Chaka were eating. When his uh, sister cooked, uh, ba- um, baked him. I, I don't know what you call it. Fried him a pancake or something, and it turned out that it was from black market flour. He threw it out the window. He wouldn't eat it. <laughs> he was a he was a zealot. And he was he was almost masochistic in his insistence on um, bearing every hardship and sharing every hardship. So I hadn't heard those stories about his being a hypocrite. And I'm no, no, not a hypocrite at all. That uh, the Rolls Royce was so he could do his job. It okay. was um, it was uh, that was apparently the only only uh, the closest thing to a luxury that he allowed himself. I, I and, think that's right. Yeah, and the um, and the the showing his wrist that was just that's part of the overall effect. I think. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, Yakov Peters. Yeah. Well, so the second in command, and since you're talking about showing scars, the czar's yeah. police had pulled out all his fingernails. Um, so um, now I don't. Since I'm not an expert in torture, I don't know if your fingernails grow back once that happens to you. Maybe they do. I don't know. Um, but that would, if not, that would have been a visible scar for Yakov Peters. He was the number two. Um, everyone thought of him as a slightly um, more um, sympathetic character than Zerzhinsky. But of course, everyone really was more sympathetic <laughs> than, than Zerzhinsky. Um, but as a sort of the civilized one who uh, could do a favor for a Western journalist or something like that. And Lockhart got to know Yakov Peters well, and so did Mura. He was uh, the man, I think, largely responsible for their treatment once they were captured. So 
as we've described the, the stage, this is sort of mostly now in, in Moscow by the time the, the plot goes underway. But what's happening in the rest of the war? I, I laid things out briefly in the intro. Um, the war is going very badly for the Allies. Um, and so their interest in the Bolsheviks is not necessarily because of their hatred of communism, although that, that's part of it, sure. But what they're really concerned with is Germany, right? Is, have I got that right? Yes. Um, what they were, uh, first of all, they hated Bolshevism from, from the moment it a- appeared for all the obvious reasons that such, such governments would hate Bolsheviks. Um, but on top of all the reasons for hating Bolshevism that you might think of, as you say, they were terrified that the Bolsheviks would live up to their principles and take Russia out of the war. And if that happened, then Germany would be relieved of having to fight on the Eastern Front and would be able to turn its full fury upon the um, Allied armies in the West. The United States had entered the war in June of 1917, but it was taking a long time for Allied soldiers to get there in significant numbers. And the uh, British and the French and Italians were very worried that they would not be able to hold back the Germans in another offensive, which in fact Ludendorff was planning for the summer of 1918. And in fact, um, they are they have sufficient um, reinforcement. Well, so the the Germans sign a treaty, uh, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, uh, with the Bolsheviks. Could you explain uh, what the Bolsheviks give up and and why they do it and how Germany benefits from this? Yes. Um, the, the Bolsheviks signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk because they had no choice. It was a terrible, terribly punitive treaty. It took from the old Russian Empire most of its Western possessions, that is to say Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia. Um, um, let's see. It imposed an enormous financial indemnity upon them. And it required them to um, disarm in various ways. But they had to do it. And the reason they had to do it was because they didn't have an army left. Now, the only time, to my knowledge, that the Bolsheviks came near to splitting was precisely over the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, because the treaty was so punitive that nearly half the Bolsheviks uh, in the top committee said, we cannot possibly accept this treaty. It is too awful. And therefore, what we will do is retreat behind the Urals, if necessary, and continue some kind of guerrilla warfare against the Germans as they invade us. And so I think there were six Bolsheviks in the committee who took that line and seven following Lenin who said, it's absurd because we don't have even the possibility of an effective guerrilla army. We have no army at all. And um, Trotsky and I think one or possibly two others abstained in that vote and Lenin won by the margin of seven to six. And so the Bolsheviks accepted this terribly Carthaginian peace that the Germans had imposed upon them. And so the Western Allies know now that Germans will get. I guess for the in even in British when they're thinking about the Great War, often fail to realize there was an Eastern Front in the First World War as well as the Second World War, um, and um, 
that there are not just it's not just the troops that are there it's the also the austro-hungarian troops that have been busy losing to the russians um throughout the war but they can be now in the italian front all those german troops can be shifted to the western front the supplies and they have the entire uh, the grain fields of poland and i guess even of ukraine to yes. now supply germany and and to defeat the allied blockade by by feeding the the German population, which is beginning to be rather malnourished by the spring of 1917. Yes, I I agree with everything you just said. So this is a, a this is the strategic problem um, that Lockhart is supposed to solve. Um, how does he go about? You said he tries to persuade at first, tries to persuade the Bolsheviks to re-enter the, the war. Um, what the what carrot does he offer? Economic support, economic aid of all of all sorts, and so long as um, the Germans seemed to be intent upon invading Russia, the Bolsheviks were willing to entertain the possibility of good relations with the British and the French and the Americans, um, and and to meet them halfway, and so the focal point became. The three ports, two in the north, far north and west of Russia, one in the far east. The one in the far east was Vladivostok. The two in the northwest were Murmansk and a little bit further south, Archangel. Um, In all three ports, there were massive uh, depots full of essential supplies, some for war, uh, others not for war. The Allies wanted to safeguard those ports in case the Germans were going to invade and try to take the material out of them. And Lockhart kept saying that what we have to do is get the Russians to a degree to invite us into those ports to safeguard them. And we will offer in return um, uh, all kinds of economic aid. And this will be a basis for good relations that will eventually turn the Bolsheviks back into our allies against the Germans. And uh, it didn't work. No, it didn't work because the Bolsheviks figured out that the Germans were not going to invade Russia. They were going to turn all their fury upon the allies in the West. And once that became clear to them, then they could think of no good reason for allowing British and French and American and Serbian and Italian troops into Russian soil, onto Russian land, since they knew quite well that those countries hated Bolshevism and might try to overthrow them. So at what point uh, in 1918 does uh, Lockhart decide to go ahead with with a plot? And um, where does he get the authority to do that? Um, okay. Is this is actually a cable about this? Do you, do, can you read sort of Balfour saying, yes, carry on? If only. Um, yeah, yeah, I, would, I can imagine. This is not the sort of thing that would be written down. No. Um, but um, so, so set that up for us, please. Sure. Um, once Lockhart realizes that the Russians will not let the allies into those ports. And for the moment, we should concentrate on the two northwestern ones, Murmansk and Archangel. Um, And he understands that the allies really want to take those ports to safeguard the material that's in them, but not only for that reason, but also 
to conceivably march west from them, first south and then west, picking up loyal Russians along the way to take the Germans from the from behind, from the eastern front. Once he realizes that that is what is going on in the minds of his superiors in London, then he begins bending his mind to how to accomplish that. And the only way to accomplish it is to do it over Bolshevik objections. And so it becomes apparent to him that the allies are going to have to mm, establish contact with and eventually come to support anti-Bolsheviks in Russia. That's the kernel. That's the beginning of it. From there, it enlarges. The kernel sprouts. It grows. Um, And he begins to think, and it's not only Lockhart who's thinking this, it's also his superiors back in London. Well, once you've got an army in Russia coming down from the north on the way to the eastern front against Germany is precisely Petrograd and just a little bit south and west, not really very far out of the way is Moscow. And we could get rid of these Bolsheviks uh, as part of uh, as part of the mission. It's that's what you might call mission creep. And so Lockhart began scheming and planning to make something like that happen. And that's what's called the Lockhart plot. And about what, what, when does he begin to scheme? Summer of late spring and early summer of 1918 is when the, the idea germinates in his head. Um, he does it against his own inclinations because he still believed that the Bolsheviks were Russia's best hope for orderly government, for competent government because the counter-revolutionary forces were so diverse and so disparate, so poorly organized, so poorly funded, um, so jealous of one another. Um, and also, insofar as some of them were still associated with the czar and with monarchism, so unpopular, um, he, 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 he thought the Bolsheviks were Russia's best chance. He never was sympathetic to Bolshevism or to communism, but he thought that they were Russia's best chance for uh, uh, um, an orderly future. And he thought that the best thing that could happen was for the British and the French and the others, in fact, to offer economic aid to, and in that way, to smooth and the, the rough edges of Bolshevism and to, to bring them into the comedy of nations, something like that. That was what he believed, but he went against his beliefs when he realized that his superiors in London favored um, overthrowing the Bolsheviks. However, let, let me, I'm giving you a very yeah. long-winded answer, but let me just say he never received a telegram telling him that that was what his superiors believed. It's simply what he intuited from half-spoken asides and from silences in telegrams and, and so on and so forth. And uh, his whatever problems he had with the foreign office in the future, it wasn't for it wasn't because of this plot. Is is that is that right? I mean, um, no one said to him, "Oh my goodness, what have you done?" No, no. Um, 
he was confident, and all the conspirators were confident, that the Foreign Office understood what they were doing and approved of it. And by the way, they had with them in the conspiracy, for example, the French ambassador, whose name was Noulin. Um, He knew all about it. Uh, There's no doubt that the Foreign Office knew about it and approved it. Um, But there is not a smoking gun telegram that says so. Or if there ever was, uh, it has been weeded out of the National Archives in in Great Britain, in Kew, outside of London. Um, so now what was the second part? So the, part ne- so, the que- so, so Lockhart is beginning that the scheme is going over. This is starting to, on, 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 he's starting to lay the, the groundwork for this in the summer of 1918, just as operation Michael has failed. Um, and the, um, finally the American, uh, army has arrived in sufficient strength to begin what will become the Meuse-Argonne, um, offensive. And uh, nevertheless, the plot seems to have required a momentum and logic of its own over the summer of 1918. Um, after all, I mean, to be, to be fair, everyone thinks the war is going to go on into 1919. Um, everyone's planning is, is based on that. And uh, no, one can, uh, no one would have believed, I think, even as late as September or uh, certainly August, that uh, it might all end in November so, as suddenly as it did. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. I, I would have said September. Um, it was not clear who you, nobody knew who was going to win World War I at that point. The Germans fell apart remarkably quickly when they finally did fall apart. Um, so the Lockhart plot proceeded. Mm-hmm. So um, what did his plot depend upon? Uh, there are now allied troops in Vladivostok uh, in more importantly, as you said earlier, in Archangel and Murmansk to prevent those supplies from making their way to the Germans. Um, Does the plot rely on them? What's the muscle? There are two two sources of muscle. And as it turned out, neither muscle was very muscular. Um, (laughs) um, On the one hand, Lockhart knew that they needed... um, muscle, precisely, Russian muscle, or at least Russian army muscle, to make the plot succeed. For a time, he thought that that would be provided by what was called the Czech, uh, a Czech contingent of um, prisoners of war who had been captured by the Russians and who wanted now to go back into World War I to fight the Austro-Hungarians in order to establish Uh, an independent Czechoslovakian republic. And so at first, Lockhart hoped that the Czechs could be persuaded to provide some of the muscle that his plot would need. That that gambit failed for complicated reasons. But he then turned to what was called the Latvian Rifle Brigade. This was Bolshevism's Praetorian Guard. The Latvian Rifle Brigade was the most effective fighting force in the Russian army. Um, and it had been used by the Bolsheviks to suppress various rebellions all over the place. Because, of course, as I was saying before, I think, um, the Russian Bolsheviks were beleaguered on all sides. But the Latvian Rifle Brigade proved staunch. However, Latvia uh, had been taken by the Germans as a result of that Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. 
And the Latvians wanted to go home and they wanted to free their country from the German occupation. Um, they were tired of fighting Bolshevism's battles. And so Lockhart was racking his brains for a way to approach the Latvians and get them to help him. So that was one source of muscle that Lockhart was hoping to be able to use for complicated reasons that I'll explain if you'd like me to. Uh, he never got to use it. The other source of muscle was the contingent of British and other Allied troops that first occupied Murmansk and then some of whom came down to occupy Archangel. And the idea was that that force would be augmented, would be sufficient to march south from Archangel and to um, help capture both Petrograd and Moscow. So those are the two sources of muscle, the Latvians and the Allies. And I, um, I didn't quite explain why the Latvians failed Lockhart. I will if, I, if you want. Yeah, go, go ahead. I, I, I've always been curious about this until I read your book. Um, it, it's not as if the Latvians were sort of natural Bolsheviks. That's right. They, That's they right. weren't ideologically committed. Well, um, it's complicated. They, it's, it's, it's very hard. complicated. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, I've read, you know, the, the um, they, they formed their own soldiers' committees and so on, and they elected their own uh, spokespeople who were who were very militant uh, revolutionary types. But they were sick of fighting Bolshevism's battles; they wanted to fight Latvia's battles. Um, so Lockhart and Riley and Cromie all were fishing for Latvians. Um, but remember Felix Zerzhinsky. He knew that the British uh, wanted to overthrow Bolshevism, hated Bolshevism, and it wasn't hard to figure out that they would be looking for muscle, as you put it, and that the first place they would look, aside from the Czech battalions, which uh, failed, which were no use to, to the conspirators, the first place they would look after the Czechs was to the, Let the Latvians, or also they're also called Lets. And so what did he do? He got a couple of his, or more than a couple, um, in the end, about half dozen doing different parts of what he wanted them to do. He got them to introduce themselves in Petrograd to Cromie and in Moscow to Lockhart and to Riley and to say precisely that um, if the British and the Allies would support the establishment of an independent free Latvia after the war had finished, then they would help the Allies when the Allies marched south from Archangel. They knew that, the, um, that Lenin and Trotsky would send them to oppose the British troops coming down, who they were led by a man called General Poole, and they would stand aside and let Poole come through. However, the men making this promise to Cromie and to Lockhart and to Riley, in fact, were working for Felix Zerzhinsky. And so they led Riley and Cromie and Lockhart right up the garden path.
So he uh, intuits the point of greatest weakness, um, intuits what uh, the British, his opponents, desire more than anything else, and then dangles it in front of them. So it's a it's a classic counter-espionage operation. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, uh, it's not giving away too much to say that the plot does fail. Um, and But how it does and the uh, the ways in which the uh, person is involved and the drama and the excitement of, uh, of it all, uh, I, I'll leave that for readers to discover because this is in some ways the perfect wintertime reading. Um, it calls for a fire and a drink. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's great stuff. Um, and people have, have said that it's uh, Lacari-esque, but that's actually Lacari copies this. It goes the other way around. Uh, this is, as I said, it's 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 real. And I mean, who would come up with a cast of characters like a guy who escapes from Siberia three times, or a British journalist who who's interested in fairy tales and keeps a snake in a box? And no one could no one could invent that stuff. This is all real. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the the historical thinking behind this. Um, you know, when I was when I was a kid and uh, being raised up by historians, I was raised up by stern social historians. We talked about you know the deep forces and structures and things like that. They're all analysts and um, contingency. We, we no one told me about contingency when I was an undergraduate, um, and yet of course contingency, the ability, the contingent nature of events, uh, human persons acting as agents. Uh, this is all throughout the book. Um, have you changed your mind about that in the course of, of things? Uh, oh. You must have. You must have lots of thoughts about contingency and agency that you might not have had before writing this book. Uh, yeah, oh, what, a, what an excellent and probing question and therefore difficult to address. <laughs> um, um, yes, uh, somehow part of, part of it is this. Um, part of it is just personal. At some point, I began to realize that I wanted to write books that people would enjoy reading, mm-hmm. which isn't to say that social history can't be extraordinarily enjoyable to read, and, and the best social history is. But yeah. also, I did come to realize at some point that the emphasis of social historians and economic historians and cultural historians upon um, vast indivertible forces um, left out, as you say, human agency. And I just began to realize from watching politics and life around me that who was in charge and who was making decisions really did make a difference. And so that that brought me back. I had actually begun writing uh, labor history, but it was political labor history. It brought me back after a number of forays into social history and cultural history. It brought me back to being fascinated by the men and women whose actions and whose choices have shaped our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, yeah, go on. I was just also going to say, um, the historian who is interested in writing that kind of work has to beware because it's the, the sources do not always allow the historian 
to explain what, uh, why a person made the choice he or she did. Um, and, and what I have decided is that, yes, it is hugely important to emphasize contingency and agency, but equally it's important for the historian never to say, to, re, to, to conclude something if the evidence is not sufficient to conclude it, and that the historian's job is to lay it out for the reader to see why the historian chose to say what he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's impossible to, to really, I mean, who would want to be inside Sidney Riley's head? It's, it's a very scary place. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one, one imagines, and it's impossible to say why it, why he does what he does. We can just say that, gosh, um, there's he seems to really, for a guy who was expelled from Russia, perhaps as a result of an anti-Tsarist plot, he really didn't like bullshies. Yeah, and no, that's for a, sure. A, yeah. a lot of thing, a lot of things flow from that. Yes, yes. Um, speaking of sources, um, you say uh, you're very candid. Uh, you say this is the first full-length book about the Lockhart plot, and it will not be the last. Um, not maybe. <laughs> there are uh, lots of uh, editors and publicists uh, probably didn't like that. Um, say this is the definitive book it's it's this book shows and blah 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 but there's a lot of good reason for that um, and that has to do with the sources that you're able to draw upon and your own uh, background and uh, so could you explain how you came to this book um, not personally but as a scholar who uh, you knew you know a lot about Arthur Balfour and the British Foreign Office in the in during the world, First World War is that how you came to this story in, in as a scholar? We're going to get to the personal the way that you came to it as a as a person. Um, I don't want to, defi- to distinguish those two too much, but um, so yet the there are a lot of sources that are unavailable to you or right. anyone else. Right. Um, I actually decided to write the book while I was reading. Um, a biography of Stalin, reading it for pleasure. And, and, and there was just a brief reference to the Lockhart plot, and I realized it had never been written about before. Now, I'm not talking at all about how I, how, as you say, how the, the personal reasons that led me to, to write it. Um, once I decided, gee, I could try to write that book after all, I began looking into it, and then I realized how difficult it would be. And here's why. Yes, I have spent years and years over the course of my life at the National Archive in Kew, which is west of London. And I know how to work that place very well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I knew I could find whatever was to be found in the British archives. Um, However... I also realized that this was a subject that the British government had discouraged people from learning about. They didn't, they didn't want to publicize that they had endorsed this failed attempt to murder the leaders of a foreign country. So I realized that they're probably that the, the, the sources at the National Archive in Kew would probably have been weeded, have been vetted. So I was aware of that from the start. 
Um, I also knew I'm, I'm a British historian. I'm not a Russian historian. I don't read Russian. That could have been an absolutely uh, insuperable problem. However, I was enormously lucky to discover a graduate student uh, from the University of Chicago who was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, named Andre Schleachter, who uh, was the most imaginative and resourceful and um, uh, disciplined research assistant a person could have had. And through Andre, I got to all kinds of Russian sources that would never have occurred to me. And I don't simply mean newspapers and obscure Russian pamphlets and and journal articles and so on that he could translate for me. Um, he really did his best to get me into, that is through proxies, but into uh, the archives in Russia. Now, that turned out to be um, problematic too, because except for a brief period when Gorbachev had taken over and the archives were opened, even of the KGB and the Cheka before it, the Secret Service, um, they're not open now. But through Andre, I was able to correspond with um, FSB. That's that's the old, that's the new version of the KGB. In other words, uh, Secret Service. I was able to correspond with FSB generals who had access to papers and who were helpful to me. Um, so that's how I coped with a subject that most governments have either wanted to cover up or simply to exploit without paying a lot of attention to the truth. Um, as long as we're talking about this, there was one other thing that was possible for me. There's a Russian historian who teaches at the University of Idaho named Richard Spence, who has written about, um, not about the Lockhart plot, uh, but he's written about Riley and he has written about others involved in the counter-revolutionary uh, world of the early 1920s. He had been to Russia and had purchased on the black market from <laughs> some um, weird, uh, a guy who was, who, uh, who was used by the old KGB to write puff pieces. But this man apparently would go into the archives of the KGB and, and, and Xerox stuff while they weren't looking, and then he would sell it to scholars. And Richard Spence bought a, a treasure trove of this stuff. And through Andre Schleachter, I tracked him down. And Richard went went out to his garage and pulled this stuff out of the. Geez, you know, I hope he gives and, a lot of stuff to Hoover. I mean, this is. I mean, that's that they bought a lot of that stuff in the brief period when the archives were open, but uh, no, well, I was at the Hoover Institute. I, I went, yeah. I got everything that was possible to get out of that place. Yeah. This is, this is better. This was more stuff. This is amazing. Um, oh, yeah. okay. But there never was enough. There never, yeah. I mean, no. so I never found a smoking gun telling Lockhart to go shoot Lenin and Trotsky or something yeah. like that. And, and one, you know, one day, and so one day the president of Russia won't be a former Czechist or a current Czechist. And um, and those archives will open again. And we'll find out all sorts of other things uh, yes, to, right. to, to to fully to fill it out. I, I was curious about. Um, I don't know if you'd worked with the with the files of uh, uh, with worked in trying to figure out a conspiracy like this before, but it seems to me like anyone doing espionage history 
that to inhabit this wilderness of mirrors must make a historian as uh, feel as slightly insane as a counterintelligence specialist um, in which, um, you know, who's telling the truth to who? Yeah. Um, and, and especially who's, which, who's, what agent's telling the truth to their case officer and what case officer is, is telling the truth to their, uh, the control back in London or, or, or whatever. I mean, yeah. Uh, it, how did you, how did you cope with that? Well, look, the fact of the matter is that's no different from just normal history. How do you how do you know to believe, you know, if some politician says something in his memoir or her memoir or writes a letter or whatever, how do you know it's true? You never do. And and so actually this this uh writing this book simply meant um uh the difficulties were exponentially greater, but they were not different in kind they were you see so Mm -hmm. so if you know if you're naturally skeptical to begin with as i as i think i am as you um, should be i mean this is as you know as my friend uh, lundell calder often says the first question a historian should ask is are you kidding me (laughs) Uh, although he puts a little bit more uh, vulgarly than that but yeah Uh, right yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. So no, that was not the that was not a that was not a a, a great difficulty for me. Um, let's uh, conclude. There's a, a really interesting uh, connection between Jonathan Schneer, not just as a scholar but as a person to this story. Um, how you first heard about this plot uh, links us back to a person we didn't talk enough about in the course of the conversation, but um, we will now. Um, Mura von Beckendorf, as you said, she had a daughter named Tanya. And lo and behold, Jonathan Schneer got to know Tanya decades and decades and decades after that. Could you, could you describe that? Sure. Um, I can give the long version or the short version, I suppose. Well, Sorry? Go ahead, and, go ahead and, and say as much as you want. Sure. I'll, I'll give the long version because you can do what you want with it. Um, the long version is that uh, in 1980, I think, or 81 or 82, I organized a conference about British politics, and I invited to it from England a man named John Grigg, who became a friend of mine. John Grigg was an illustrious historian, but also a famous journalist and um who knew everybody. And if you went to John Grigg's house, you were as likely to meet uh, the foreign secretary, Douglas Hurd at the time, or the ambassador from India as anybody else. And for whatever reason, John and I became good friends. And he was such a grand figure, I rarely wanted to ask him for favors, but I would go every year to England to do my research and would find a place to live usually. And one summer, I just couldn't find anything. And I wrote to John. And so John called me up a week or two later from London and said, I've got a place for you to stay. But before I introduce you to your new landlady, go read her book. And so the landlady's name was Tanya Alexander. And I went to the library and she had a book called An Estonian Childhood. And I read the book. And all the book, although the book was supposed to be a memoir and Tanya had lived an extraordinary life, the book was as much about her mother as it was about Tanya. And her mother, of course, was Mura von Benkendorf, 
who became Lockhart's lover. So when I would go, I became good friends with Tanya. She was born in 1915. She was 30 years older than I or more. Um, but we became good friends too. And every summer I would stay at her house in Knightsbridge. Um, I would do my food shopping at Harrods Food Hall, which is um, uh, a wonderful place to, to spend a lot of money. Um, and, um, and Tanya and I would talk. And so Tanya never really escaped the shadow, as I say, of her mother. Although when you went to Tanya's house, there would be Nikita Khrushchev's granddaughter, or there would be, um, oh, I don't know, someone famous, Jonathan Miller, or, you know, whatever. Um, so, um, let me see. Well, I'm curious, what, I mean, Robin Bruce Lockhart. Um, the son. The son of Robert. He yes. was always convinced and um, that uh, Mura... Uh, was a uh, a double agent that she had been maybe working for Zhuzhinsky the entire time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or, or that she, or that certainly later on in her, uh, we, we should describe her a rather extraordinary afterlife after the plot. Yeah. But um, I mean, that, that is like taking uh, evidence from the second wife about the first wife, or vice versa, or the second husband about the first husband. Yeah. No, um, it's it's, it's bolder um, yeah. So um, I mean, so we should ex explain then that you've yes. got this. This you had you developed. So before you knew anything else about the Lockhart plot, you knew about Moore von Beckendorf. Yes. Um, so and that's that's kind of important to how the, that your book then develops. Yes. So Moore um, um, had an extraordinary life. First of all, I should say that the the love affair that she and Robert Hamilton Bruce Lockhart had was the most important love affair for each of them in their lives. Um, but Lockhart, Bruce Lockhart, was, as I have said in the past, a cad. And he left her because it, he jilted her because it was much more convenient to do that once he was sent home from Russia to his wife. And so Mura was left on her own in Russia, which was falling apart, of course, in 1919, 1920, 21. And she went on to have the most extraordinary life. She first found her way into the home of Maxim Gorky and became his muse and lover and translator and agent. Um, um, but when her and she did that because her husband i failed to say was murdered in 1919 at the beginning of 1919 so that tanya and her brother grew up not with a father and not with their mother but living at the in the dower house of the estate in estonia with their nanny and a shifting cast of relatives who had come through um meanwhile mura was gallivanting around the world with the most important people in the world, um, uh, based usually with Gorky, whom whom she whom she deeply admired and loved, but not in the same not in the romantic way that she had loved Lockhart. Anyway, Mora eventually moved to England. She had by then married a second time a Baron uh, Budberg from um, Estonia, I guess it was. Um, 
And but he but she married him solely in order to get his get a passport from Estonia through marriage to him so that she could travel outside uh, the Soviet Union with or without, you know, Maxim Gorky. And eventually she wound up in England. And eventually, of course, so did her daughter, Tanya. And so when I was living at Tanya's house, which I did every summer for 20 years or more, um, someone would be writing a book about the next one of Moore's most important lovers, who was H.G. Wells. And Moore, H.G. Wells was a famous ladies' man, but Mora dominated H.G. Wells. And uh, Wells asked her to marry him many, many times, and she never would do it. She kept him on a string. But H.G. Wells's biographers would always be writing about Mora, and these books would be published, and Tanya would have them, and she would read them, and she would become disgusted at the portrayal of her mother. And so we began to talk about Mora, and that was my introduction to the Lockhart plot. In fact, that was when I found out about the plot and found out something about Mora. And by the way, Tanya was quite convinced, and so am I, that Mora did not spy for the Germans, which she was supposed to maybe have done during uh, the early part of World War I, because she had been with her husband, who was a diplomat in Berlin before the war, and had a kind of a salon where expat Germans congregated in 1915 and 1916. No, she didn't spy for the Germans. Uh, some said she spied for Kerensky on the Germans. No, she didn't do that. Some said she spied for um, the Bolsheviks on the Ukraine. I don't think she did that. Some said she spied for the Ukraine on the Bolsheviks. She didn't do that. Through Andrei Schleyachter, I was actually able uh, to contact the premier historians of Ukrainian intelligence. And um, they went through the records for me. Those records are open, and there is no mention of Mura among those uh, in those papers. Um, but I do think Mura probably cut a deal with the Chaka after she was arrested and Lockhart was arrested when the plot was defeated. And the deal was that she would work for the Cheka if they spared Lockhart's life. And I think this for a number of reasons. Um, One of them is that while Lockhart was still in prison and Mura had been released, she was able to bring him, he was imprisoned, by the way, in a perfectly decent little apartment inside the Kremlin. Um, She was able to bring him goodies and dainties purchased on the black market with the knowledge of the Chaka that she was doing that. Well, it was illegal to do that. People got shot for purchasing stuff on the black market. So Mura had the okay of, she had an understanding with the Chaka. And I think, as I say, that the deal was that the Chaka would spare his life if Mura would work for them. And then I have a, a second a slight piece of information about this, which is that Mura, many years later, told H.G. Wells's son, when they were talking about conditions in Russia 
during that emergency period and when everybody was in great peril. And Morris said to the son something like, um, um, to refuse to do what is necessary in such times under such emergency conditions uh, is to elect not to survive. Huh. And Mura was a survivor, for, to put it mildly. Um, yeah. Now, another uh, two more parts of this, and I'll, I'll let it go. Um, one is, according, Mura has two biographers, and they both tell the same story, which I cannot vouch for, but I think it could be true. She was living with Maxim Gorky. She fell under his spell. Um, she once said, I heard an interview done with her in which she said that Gorky was a universe unto himself. And she deeply admired and loved him, although not in a romantic way. Um, Gorky was a maverick. And although he knew Lenin and he was sympathetic to the revolution, he was not a Bolshevik. And the Chika is supposed to have asked Mura to spy on Gorky, to keep them posted of what was he was doing, who was coming into the house, what they were saying, and so on and so forth. And Mura couldn't do it. And she confessed to Gorky. And Gorky simply went to Lenin and, um, um, and said, get them to lay off her. And Lenin got them to lay off. Um, that appears in the biographies. I can't say that it's true. Um, one more thing. Actually, I can tell two more things. Um, shall I do it? Yeah, please. Okay. So one is... Um, one year long ago in the 90s, um, I was a visiting fellow at St. Catherine's College, Oxford, and a number of us were standing to go into dinner, and I was standing next to an ancient Russian historian, um, and we began chatting, and I don't remember this man's name, and, but he's a very distinguished figure. And I said, oh, well, um, I stay with a Russian in London often. Maybe you know her name, Tanya Alexander. And he said, no, I don't, I don't think so. And I said, well, she's the daughter of Mura Budberg. Yes. And this old man drew back in horror and <laughs> sort of whispered the words KGB. Um. Um, so on the other hand... When I talked about this with Tanya, Tanya absolutely was certain that her mother liked to be thought of as mysterious and important. And she did know all the most important people and they all respected her and so on, but she was never a spy. And I talked also with Tanya's son-in-law, Sir David Wilson, who is a former um, um, what's the top figure in Hong Kong? The not Governor General, but um, yeah, I know what you're that, saying. The um, that, that title. Anyway, yeah. he was that. He knows the diplomatic service. He knows the Foreign Office very well, and he agreed that Mora was the kind of person who might be called into the Foreign Office to. Um, to be debriefed if she had been to Russia or if she had seen someone. 
but that she was never actually an agent or a spy. And, and that, that's by and large what I think. Although I think she probably did cut that deal temporarily with the Chaka in order to get her lover out of prison in 1918. Well, my guest today has been Jonathan Schneer. He's the author of, lately, mostly recently, The Lockhart Plot, Love, Betrayal, Assassination, and Counter-Revolution in Lenin's Russia. Jonathan Schneer, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Ah, it's my pleasure. This was an interesting conversation. Thank you for inviting me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 